just a small glimpse of our team that went to Zoe's. Can we just say thank you to them and just their efforts? You know, because of your crazy generosity, we get to partner and participate in efforts like that at Zoe's Place. And you can learn more at zoesplace.com and uh, an opportunities for you to continue to support the bacon and egg farm uh, that's being built. So we're just so grateful uh, for your participation in that. Now, we're going to be in Matthew 19 today. And we've been in a string of uh, messages uh, with the, the subtitle, Forgiven. And part of what's happening here is uh, Jesus has been a little bit like Mike Tyson. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is Mike Tyson. Don't tweet that, Okay. But if you've ever seen Mike punch somebody, he's got this uppercut that was really tight and would really put you into the next week. And so uh, I feel that way with Jesus a little bit. Jesus has been saying some things that are very hard. And today, uh, the, 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 if you look back and say, well, what is the kind of the, the general idea of Matthew 19, 16 through 22? And even following this, it's going to be where Jesus hits on money. Yeah, sounds exciting. And there's two reactions that will happen when you hear a message on money or any kind of conversation from even a, a church is, on one hand, you might be tempted to ignore it. You'll pull up your bank preference of choice, and, uh, which is where your money's at, and you'll pull it up. And you'll notice that there's not many commas, if any, on your bank account. And you'll say, well, obviously this message doesn't apply to me because I am not a rich person. But secondly, you might be tempted to feel guilty. That somehow, because there are commas in your bank account, even if it's just one comma, there is a weight of guilt that you feel that you have any money. And let me just tell you, that is not the point of what Jesus gets at in this message today. Jesus is not trying to make you, uh, allow you to be, be, uh, ignore what he has to say, nor does he want you to feel guilt about what he has to say. He wants you to follow him. That's what he wants from you. And so in our text today, there's this weight to it. Jesus talked about money more and possessions more than any other topic within the scriptures. And today, as we're walking in this multi-year walk through the Gospel of Matthew, we come to a place where Jesus is again asked a question. He gives an answer, and it doesn't go the way the questioner thought it would go. So let's look at Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to start in verse 16 and read through 22. If you're there, will you say word? Just then, someone came up to him and asked, Teacher, what good must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, he said to him. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commands. Which ones, he asked him. Jesus answered him, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not Bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Look at his response. I have kept all of these. The young man told him, what do I still lack? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go and sell your belongings and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. We don't know exactly the age of this young man, but we can make some guesstimates that he was in between the ages of 20 and 40 because anything over 40 is old, right? I used to think that 40 was really old until I became 40, and I went, man, that's super young. But the reality is this young man is young, but he's also rich. He's rich in two ways. 
He's rich in two ways. The first way that he's rich is that he is rich financially. We see this in the text. He's a, your subtitle of your text might even say a rich young ruler. He has wealth. An abundance of wealth, it very well seems. And it, it, there's no indication that he had inherited that. There's no indication that it had come from a lottery ticket or anything like that. It is just wealth that he has earned on his own accord. He's a, obviously, therefore, a smart man. He's, he is wealthy financially, but he's also wealthy morally. He, he's rich in doing good. I mean, this is the guy that you want your daughters to bring home as the guy that they'd like to marry. He's a good person. He's got means. He's wealthy. But our text is gonna show us that he has the wrong idea of salvation. He has the wrong idea of salvation. He, he thinks that salvation is something that you can actually earn. There's some good that he can do. Look at verse 16, he says, uh, that's not verse 16. There's verse 16. He says, what good must I do? What, what do I need to do to have eternal life? He obviously is a man who's seeking the Lord. This is like an ideal church member. This is somebody who is a, a prospect, as, as some old terms we might have used in days gone by. Somebody who we would like to have as part of the church because he's an educated man. He shows reverence. He's calling Jesus teacher. And he's seeking eternal life. But also, he has means. Like, this is like the guy that you want to join your church. I remember when Derek Carr signed a, an enormous contract with, the, at that time it was Oakland Raiders, but now it's Las Vegas Raiders, but I can't keep up. And so he signed this contract, and at his press conference, they said to him, hey, what are you going to write your first check for? What are you going to buy? That's what everybody asks. What's the first thing you're going to purchase? And he said, I'm going to, first thing I'm going to do is tithe. The next week they said, well, how was your first week? He said, you'll be shocked by how many pastors called me. So this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he shows respect. He says, hey, what? I want eternal life. He has means. He's, he's rich financially. He's rich morally. And there's this, this is temptation here that we might think, oh, this is the ideal church guy. The problem here is that he, he thinks there's something that he can do to inherit eternal life. There's something that he thinks he just, if he does this one extra thing, that all of a sudden eternal life will be his. But look what Jesus says in, in verse 17. Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. He's, he's referencing the Lord God himself. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So look what he says in verse 18. And so the man asks, well, which ones? Tell me, I'll do them, or I'm already doing them. So he says, don't murder. That's a pretty ideal church member, isn't it? Okay. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus gives him this list of, of things, and Jesus is setting some things up, so it's not as if Jesus now said, just do these and you'll be good. Jesus is setting this man up to realize that he has the wrong idea of how to be saved. So this man hears this list, and there's this sense of which he says, don't murder, check. Don't commit adultery, check. Don't steal, check. Don't bear false witness, check. Honor your father and mother, check, check. Love your neighbor as yourself, check. Because look what he says in the next verse. I've kept all of these. Look, Jesus, I did it. And yet he asks the question, this is a critical question, what do I still lack? 
So it's apparent that this man has done all the right things morally. He is so rich morally. And he has, in essence, done a lot of right things financially. He is so rich when it comes to finances. And yet he looks at his life and he says, yet there's something missing. I think in our minds we think if I do all the right things, if I'm a good person, then... I will have all the things that I've ever wanted, and it will go well for me. And yet this man has such awareness that he says, but I'm, there's something that's, that's missing inside of me. There's something that's lacking inside of me. Why does it seem that I have missed the point of all of this? This man had the wrong idea of salvation. He thought that he could obtain salvation by what he did. That's what he thought. Some of you feel that way, don't you? Some of you feel like you have done all the right things in your life, and yet when you add up your life, it's not amounting to what you thought it was. You've had the wrong idea of salvation because you thought salvation was that which you could earn when salvation is that which is a gift. And so you've got this mentality, well, what do I still lack? Because if I'm lacking something, I'll do it. Just tell me what to do. I will do that, and it will fix everything. We do this with our spouses, just tell me how to love you. I'll love you that way, and it'll fix everything. You do that with your kids. When they're acting out, tell me what it is that you need. I'll give it to you so you can just be quiet. Only, oh, only I do that? Okay, I just want to make. That's a transaction. What do I still lack, Jesus? Because whatever I'm lacking, tell me, I'll do it. That way I can have salvation. I remember, I know two football illustrations is bad, but just bear with me. Tom Brady, they call him the goat, not because they're cutting him down, the greatest of all time. And some years ago, this is going to date the quote, but Tom had won his third Super Bowl. And he, he says, I have made so much more money than I ever thought by playing a game, the game of football. And then he said this. He said, I have three Super Bowl rings and still think something greater is out there for me. It's got, it's got to be more than, than this. The wrong idea of salvation is thinking that the more you do, the more success you have morally, the more success you have financially, that somehow it's going to fill that little hole that is in the recesses of your heart. What do I still lack, Jesus? What do I still lack? Because if I'm lacking something, then I want to fix it. So this guy not only had the wrong idea of salvation, thinking that he could earn eternal life, but he also had the wrong idea of the Savior. He had the wrong idea of the Savior. Because Jesus tells him in verse 21, well, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your belongings and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Jesus is identifying to him and saying to him, look, look, if, if you want, okay, you want what I'm offering, you, you then need to go sell everything. But look what happens in verse 22. It says, the young man heard that and went away grieving. It's a key word here, grieving because he had many possessions. This man came with a question to Jesus, expecting a particular answer, got a different answer than he thought he was going to get, and he walked away sad. 
he grieved as if he was told he was going to lose something of which he held dear to. He had the wrong idea of what would bring him salvation. He thought, he thought he was morally rich, but he realized that there was something that had encapsulated his heart to which it had controlled him and it had been the center of his life and it had become his possessions, what he could obtain. And he's trying to apply the same thing to eternal life and he's realizing the same math equation doesn't result in eternal life. The wrong idea of the Savior. This, this was an educated man. Uh, This was a man who was actually seeking the Lord. This was a man who was wealthy. This was a man who was morally good. And and yet he's he's standing here and he's being confronted with the ugliness of his his sin. Why? So I begin to ask the question, why does this man, why does he grieve? I think there's a couple of reasons why he begins to grieve. He grieves because he met the real Jesus. This rich young ruler grieved because he met the real Jesus. Not the Jesus of his imagination. Not the Jesus that he had, had rubbed a genie and then it comes out, a bottle, and it, and, a, and it comes out and now he can get whatever he wants. And I think what happens is in life is Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations. I deserve this. I'm owed this. I want this. I'm asking of this. Because if you say... Ask whatever I want in your name, so therefore I'm going to ask in the name of Jesus, therefore it's going to happen, as if, again, you punch in the right numbers and Jesus dispenses exactly whatever you asked. Oh, oh, so if I give my life to Jesus, then whatever I want, he's going to give to me? You realize that does not work in any other relationship in life. If I have children, they'll always obey and love me. No. It doesn't work that way. And so he says, I think I've just met the real Jesus and I'm grieved by this because he doesn't meet my expectations. Jesus, Jesus' way of interacting with the world was way different than the way that they thought he was going to interact. He was, he was the king, but yet he was a, a lowly king. He, he, he was the king, and yet he, he was a servant. He, he said, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. He wouldn't come to be served, but to serve. When he's with the disciples in the very last moments of his life, he's washing their feet when they really should have been washing his feet. He's, he's counter to what they expected, and this is the way Jesus always is with us. In fact, if Jesus was walking down Highway 31, I wonder if we would even recognize Jesus because he's different than what we thought he was going to be like. Jesus doesn't meet his expectations. He met the real Jesus. One commentator said it this way, when you meet the real message of the gospel, you always find two shocking things. Jesus demands more, much more than you ever thought, and he offers more to you than you ever imagined. When you meet Jesus, you cannot walk away indifferent. You will either surrender or you will be grieved. This man met the real Jesus and it grieved him because he did not meet his expectations. Because we have this expectation that if we give, just give your life to Jesus, everything will go better for you. And that simply, friends, isn't always the case. Ask the disciples. Tell me which disciples 
earned a windfall of cash and had multiple homes on the sea after he followed Jesus. He left, they left everything. Jesus doesn't always meet your expectations. A good friend said to me on our, right before God had called us here that we had just sensed that God was gonna do a, a good work, he said, would you, would you be still as confident in Jesus if when you get there in six months, half the church leaves? I thought, yeah. And I'm so confident God has called us there that no matter what happens, we will know that he has held us fast and six months later, the whole church was gone. COVID hit. And yet to reel back to go, our yes had always been on the table. And so sometimes we think when we say yes to the Lord in obedience that everything's just going to get better. But sometimes, friends, it actually gets harder because you meet the real Jesus. Not just that, he realizes that Jesus is not a supplement. Jesus is not a supplement to his already pretty good life. The biggest problem that this man had is that he had been successful in finances and successful morally. And so the mentality for him was, all I gotta do is add a little bit of Jesus to my pretty good life and things will go great. I'll get that eternal life. Jesus is not satisfied by being a trinket on your bracelet. Jesus is not satisfied to be a little bit of salt to add some flavoring to your pretty good meal. Jesus is not satisfied to be the garlic butter that's melted over your reverse seared steak. That's not what Jesus is satisfied with. Jesus doesn't say, I've come to add a little bit of life to your already pretty good life. Jesus says, I've come to give you life. Like we think, we think for some, whatever reason, I think because of our arrogance, we think that Jesus, if we give our lives to him, he's just going to make our pretty good, awesome life a little bit better. I think it's the greatest lie the enemy has told the Western church. A little bit of Jesus added to your really good life, you'll be happy. And yet we stand before the Lord and say, what do I still lack? Why do I still feel? still feel empty why does it feel like I have no encounter with you that's why he says in verse 16 he says what what do I need to do tell me what to do I'll do it just one more instruction Jesus just one more just one more thing just one more list one more to do and I'll make it happen Jesus comes, and when, he, when you trust in him as your Savior, you're also trusting him as your Lord. And he doesn't come to just rearrange the furniture in your pretty good house. He comes and turns everything upside down. When Jesus comes to town, he flips the tables, man. He says, I've come, and I'm, I'm not just rearranging your priorities. I'm not just giving you a, a, an added vision. I'm giving you a new vision. I'm giving you a new purpose. I'm giving you a new life. This is, I'm giving you a new heart. This is what I'm doing. Jesus, this man walks away grieved because he thinks Jesus was just going to be a supplement. He realizes that's not who Jesus is. But Jesus also gets really personal with this man. Jesus gets personal. 
He, he's not just met the real Jesus. He's not, not only realizing that Jesus is not a supplement, he also saw Jesus get really, he gets into, G, Jesus gets into his business. I, I don't know why we are shocked when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Okay, here's how this works out over the last two weeks in the Kreiner household with no mama. When my tone had been too sharp with my children, and I literally can see it on their face, and then their eyes begin to sweat. I don't know what that is, but their eyes begin to sweat. And I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit to say your tone was too sharp on your children. Why am I shocked when I'm under conviction of sin? And I look at them and I say, Daddy's tone was too sharp. I, I, you may need a, a second to process that, but Daddy is, needs to ask your forgiveness. Jesus doesn't talk around the bush about your sin. He uproots the bush. He doesn't, like, this, that, that's how we'll confront people in their sin. We'll kind of do this. You, you know that thing? You want to talk about it? No, he says, no, we're going to talk about it. This is wrong. The way you treated this person was wrong. The way you spoke about that person, wrong. That's what, that's what the Spirit does. I don't know why we're shocked when the Holy Spirit convicts us. Jesus always gets personal. Like when you're praying and you say, Lord, I confess all of my sin, which ones? Well, in a general sense, I've been sinful. No, 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 no. The Spirit, if he's inside of you, has convicted you of specific sins that you have committed against his holy nature character, but also has probably convicted you about sins you've committed against a brother or sister in Christ. Well, in a general sense, no, no, no. Specifically, Jesus always gets personal with you. And with me. See, for some of us, we've been in church for a long time, and, but, but Jesus just lives in the Bible, but he doesn't live in our life. And there's some of us, Jesus lives in our head, but he doesn't live in our heart. And Jesus here, when he hears this man and he's grieving, he doesn't, he doesn't shame him. Look what he does. It's actually in Mark chapter 10. I love this. Jesus looks at him. Jesus loved him. Jesus knows everything about this man, everything. He knows that he has an idol in his heart that he's concealed. He's been morally upright. He's been financially wealthy. And yet Jesus sees everything about this man. Jesus doesn't shame him or heap, you know, put guilt onto his shoulders. Jesus loves this man. Jesus looks at him. He loves him. He says, hey, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. It's, it's the same thing verbatim. The only difference is we get the emotion of Jesus, the feeling of Jesus is loving this man. This man's being confronted with the truth. But he had the wrong idea of the Savior. He thought the Savior was there to serve him, not him to serve the Savior. Following Christ is... Laying down everything for him. Come and follow me. It's what he says in verses 21 and 22. Come and follow me. If anybody would come after me, he must take up his cross and 
follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. So he had the wrong idea of salvation, wrong idea of the Savior, but he also had the wrong idea of his stuff. Jesus looks at him and says, your problem is that you love your stuff. Now everybody exhale. Because the temptation here in this passage then is where preachers or teachers would say, this is why possessions, having anything is evil and wicked and bad. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Not at all. Jesus will, though, look at your life and say, whatever is taking the seat of your treasures, that must be removed because you can only treasure Christ and have life. So there's some that would want to apply this and say only those that are in poverty are those that can follow Jesus. That, that just doesn't make sense. But what does make sense is that whatever has encapsulated your heart, become an idol for you, it's altered your emotions and feelings, it directs your steps, whatever that thing is, that's your treasure. And Jesus comes, again, not to beat around the bush, but to uproot the bush. He's come to say, hey, this is not good for you. You need to take this out. So he's saying, what do I need to do? What do I still lack? And he looks at him and says, you love your stuff too much. It's become, as one author says, your stuff has become a functional savior. That if you just accumulated more, you'll feel happier. We will do this when we feel down, we'll go shopping. We'll do this when we feel down, we'll go eat. We'll do this when we feel down, and we'll try to, to, to spur on some type of relationship with another person, thinking that if I just had that relationship, it would fill me up. But all it ever does is leave us more and more empty. He had the wrong idea about the stuff. And so Jesus looks at him as this man walks away and he's grieved. See, you could be poor and yet be enslaved to money. You could be rich and be enslaved to money, but you can be poor and be enslaved to money. And so it bears out for us a few questions this morning. There's a heaviness to this. What do you need to lay down? Like there's, there's some things that you have, you've possessed in your, on your own, and you've said to the Lord, you can have all these other things, but, but not this thing, this. And he's saying you need to lay that down. Like, what have you been holding on to? What have you been making your priority? What have you been treasuring? That thing is what is impeding you from the right relationship with the Lord. What are you willing to give up? See, this, this man, this man wasn't willing to follow the Lord. He wanted, he wanted earthly treasures more than he wanted the treasure in heaven. Now, we read a story like that and we go, I would never, I would never do that. And yet, many of us do this with every decision that we make every day. 
We choose all kinds of other things. And so, one last question. Are you willing to trust his goodness? That he is, he's worth giving up your all for. We like to play the what if game. You ever played the what if game? What if this happened? What if this happened? What if this happened? Someone even said to me, well, what if your wife didn't make it back from Malawi? It's deeply personal. Has Christ not held me fast these 41 years? Would he not hold me another 41 plus? She's not mine. People have a child and they'll say, I can't believe you'd raise a child in these conditions. I mean, do you know what this world is headed towards? They are not mine. They are not yours. They're his. What if, what if things don't work out the way that you thought they would? They probably won't, and that's probably good. What if it's not successful? What, what if leading the church is not as successful as you thought? Maybe, maybe I should just trust the Lord. And not my own work. We like to play the what if game. With scenarios that rarely ever happen. But the enemy uses to keep us from obedience. And so today for you. There's probably some areas you've wandered into that you need to lay those things down. And when we sing, it'll be a chance for you to do your business with God. And I encourage you to do that. It really begins, though, with you confessing before the Lord that He is the Lord, repenting of your sin, acknowledging your sin, confessing that He is Lord, believing that only through Him you can be saved, that's the starting point. And then as you grow in your walk in Christ, you understand that you're under his lordship. His lordship is obedience to what he has called us to do and to be. To lay it all down and say, it's all yours, Lord. It may not work out the way that I thought it should. It may not be the way that I think it should. But I'm going to have to trust you because you are good and you are enough. And that's, that's when. That's when you won't walk away from an encounter with Jesus grieving. You'll walk away with an encounter with Jesus with joy. Let's pray. Father, we come. And Lord, we are asking that in this moment you might use and work and move in our hearts. Lord, you've convicted us of sin most likely in this room right now. And Lord, our responsibility now is to respond to you under that conviction. To confess that sin before, before you. To confess that you are the Lord. To trust you with our next step. So Lord, we're asking that as you work in our hearts and lives in this moment, that you would lead us and guide us. We would surrender in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you